Mormon Discussions and its lineup of great podcasts is about helping Latter-day Saints like you tackle deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping these podcasts alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the programs on this podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber. Or making a donation at mormondiscussions.org. Again, that's Mormon Discussions, plural with an S on the end, dot org. Donate today and support programs like Mormon Discussion, Radio Free Mormon, Mormon Awakenings, The Mormon Wellness Project, Mormon History Podcast, Marriage on a Tightrope, and others. If these programs benefit you, and you want to see these continue, please consider making an annual donation starting today. All donations are tax-exempt inside the United States and go towards keeping the podcast alive. Mormon Mormon Discussions and its lineup of great programs. Helping you navigate Mormonism one episode at a time. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Spencer Wright, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you today? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks, Bill. How are you? Awesome, awesome. Grateful for this chance to have you on. Spencer is the author of the book, How to Think, Why Rational and Faith-Based Thinking are Incompatible. Uh, Spencer, before we jump into uh, some of the ideas that you share in the book and relating it to Mormonism, I uh, wonder maybe if you just introduce yourself to the audience. Yeah, I am Spencer Wright. I uh, have uh, I was raised Mormon. Have uh, was essentially in the in the Mormon Church, did all the Mormon things, mission, married in the temple, uh, and uh, actually pretty much went to church every week uh, uh, up until the week that I sent in my resignation. So I was. I, kind of consider myself somewhat of a scriptorian. I, I know quite a bit about Mormonism, uh, even still not being Mormon myself anymore. Um, but uh, I just wanted to write a book to, to help uh, kind of clarify how to think. So that's why I got the book. In the book this that you've written, you're, you're obviously having this uh, conversation for the for the reader to pick up on in dealing with both like faith and and things that are rational and logical and i guess we want to jump in by asking this idea of of can somebody be both religious uh and smart and just maybe to get your thoughts on that as we kind of jump into this sure so the the kind of the battle between uh, religion and science, you know, there, there are some people who argue that the battle doesn't even really exist, that there are, um, there, there is really no tension whatsoever. And, uh, and so I, I kind of wanted to call out the ways in which there actually is tension. Uh, one, one of the, the ways in which um, there, there are some people who try to argue that, well, we've got, we, we obviously have uh, smart people who are religious. And so, so they're, they're essentially trying to make the argument that you can, of course, be religious and intelligent or religious and rational uh, at the same time, uh, because there are people that are religious and intelligent. And that's actually not the argument that I'm making in the book. I'm, I'm, I actually explicitly state that that's not the point that I'm trying to make. Of course, you can be a religious person and a smart person. Uh, the, the point of my book is that a thought, an idea, cannot be both faith-based and rational at the same time. 
And so then I essentially lay out in the book how this is the case and, and give many multiple examples where uh, demonstrating that it, what is a faith-based thought cannot be a rational thought. Right. So when I, so again, I'm going to go back into my orthodox days of Mormonism. And when I was taught what the word faith is, uh, things that come to mind are like Alma chapter 32, where I'm told that faith is this hope I've placed in something and it, and it leads to action, but it's based in something that I don't have a perfect evidence for. But in but it's still true. Like it has to be true for there to be real faith placed in it. And so a lot of whether it's us Mormons or other folks of religion, we kind of recognize that the things we're placing faith in, they're not demonstrably true. Like if it was, that wouldn't be faith. Um, I, I want to kind of get your your two cents. Like how are you defining the word faith? Yeah, that's an important question. So. Uh, there are oftentimes I hear, like, almost the immediate uh, retort that I hear is that uh, someone, will say, someone who is more religious, more faith-based will say to me, well, doesn't everyone have faith? I mean, we, you don't know that you're going to get paid next week. You, you, you're, you have, you're putting faith in your employer to, to produce your, your paycheck for you. And so doesn't everyone have faith? You have faith that the sun is going to come up tomorrow. We have, we have faith in, in literally anything that could potentially happen in the future that you don't know with absolute certainty uh, is going to happen. Well, the fact of the matter is uh, there's nothing that is certain, even just the idea of saying that the sun is going to come up tomorrow. We don't, we don't know with absolute certainty that the sun is going to come up tomorrow. Uh, but I... I actually draw a distinction between what we refer to when we're talking about the the belief that the sun is going to come up tomorrow and faith. And this may seem like I'm kind of cheating here by actually changing the meaning of the word, but I think it's really important to see a distinction between what it is that makes us believe the sun is going to come up tomorrow and what we call faith. So so what I when I'm when we're talking about the sun coming up tomorrow, I refer to that as confidence. And what I'm having confidence in is the, the prior experience. So the facts and, and everything that we, have, that we know about the sun coming up, we, we've, we have a, a pretty consistent uh, record of the sun coming up every day. And so when I say that I believe the sun's going to come up tomorrow, I'm basing that in fact. I'm basing that in the historical record of what has actually uh, been the case. When we're talking about faith, then what I'm saying is we're, this is something that when you're putting uh, a belief in something where there is either no evidence supporting what you're doing or the evidence doesn't necessarily support what you're doing or it even contradicts what you're doing. Like, for instance, if I were to say, I believe that the sun isn't going to come up tomorrow, then I'm actually uh, demonstrating faith because I have no evidence that it's going to come up tomorrow and actually I have a lot of evidence that contradicts the belief that it's that it's not going to come up tomorrow, and so these are two very stark, uh, different ways of approaching the future. When I'm basing it in, uh, when I'm basing it in fact, when I'm basing it in in history, the historical record, uh, and the 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 preponderance of evidence supports what it is that I'm saying, I will call that confidence. And when it's either isn't supporting or even contradicts, then I call that faith. Yeah, and I th- I think that makes a lot of sense when I. When I look at my 
religious experience, every time I express the words I have faith in, they are in things that the rest of the world does not take for granted. Yeah, so uh, there, there's actually a, a relatively easy delineation that we can see here. And we can, we can demonstrate this. Let's just say that we have a Christian attorney. So that, that Christian attorney who is trying to make a, court, a, a case in court, and they, they go into court and they're, they're demonstrating all the evidence and they're kind of giving the logic and everything <clears throat> that, that supports the case that they're trying to make. And so they're, tr- they're presenting all of the logic and the evidence to the judge. And, and if the, the preponderance of the evidence weighs in their favor, then the judge just weighs in their favor based on the evidence and the logic. And that's, that's, that's essentially what we would say is confidence. So the judge doesn't know with absolute certainty whether the, the defendant committed the crime or didn't commit the crime or not. But the judge is making this, the decision based on the preponderance of evidence. Now, a, a, Christian, a Christian attorney also understands that they would not say to the judge when they get to the point where the judge is saying, well, what's your evidence? And they don't really have any evidence supporting their case. And they say to the judge, hey, judge, well, you just got to have faith, right? So, so he, they, they don't ever say that because they know there's sort of, there's a, there's a little touch of absurdity to what they're saying, right? They, they understand that the, the, to make the case that, that their side is true or accurate, they have to present the evidence and the logic that supports whatever it is they're trying to say. And so when, when you say, God, I just got to have faith, what you're really saying is, I don't have quite the evidence to support what I'm saying. Anytime, regardless of whether you're a Christian or whatever the case is, if you have the evidence supporting what you're saying, you never appeal to just got to have faith. Yeah, so what we mean when we say just got to have faith, what we're trying, what we're saying is I don't have the evidence. Right. It, but here's my struggle. Here's the reason I stammered as, before you went into that is because when you talk to somebody inside the religious group, they sometimes seem to struggle with delineating between what is real evidence and then quoting, say, a scripture and saying that proves their point. Does that make sense? Like sometimes inside the group, yeah. it's really yeah. tough to um, make the distinction that, okay, this is evidence that everybody would see as data applying to the conclusion I'm drawing. And on the yeah. other hand, here is some scripture or here's some thing a church leader says or does that happened, you know, a thousand years ago and, and still wanting to perceive that as evidence for uh, the reasons that they believe or do the things that they do. Yeah. So fundamentally what they are doing when they are appealing to something like scripture, where it's accepted in the in-group, but it's not accepted, you know, by people that are not a part of the in-group, is they're committing a logical fallacy, which is called begging the question. So what, what they're doing is they're starting with the assumption that that piece of evidence is evidence. So it would be the same thing as like going into a courtroom and saying, well, I have this, I have this uh, lucky rabbit's foot or whatever, you know, whatever. It doesn't, doesn't really matter. But it's something that they're like, well, how does the lucky rabbit's foot support your argument that, you're, that the defendant is, is innocent? And they're like, well, 
you know, they don't know the answer to that because they're already starting from the assumption that somehow it supports them. And so if I were to write on a napkin, my, my client is innocent and I present that as evidence, and they're like, well, why does the napkin present evidence that your client is innocent? You, you could have just written that literally 10 seconds before we, we walked into the courtroom. And so if I'm somehow saying using that and just, and of course, if everybody in the in-group looks at that napkin and goes, oh, well, then obviously your client is innocent because it says right there on the napkin. And no one ever questions, well, what it, why does the napkin support your evidence? Then you're essentially begging the question. You're begging the question because you're you're introducing evidence that itself needs to be supported by evidence. Perfect. And I hope people can see that when when a person from a religion says like, yeah, I do that because Moses did that. Then obviously the next question is, could you show us evidence that Moses was a real person? And once you can't do that, right, Spencer, it's not fair to then use a figure which may or may not be historical um, in which evidence is out there that perhaps it's just a myth or non-historical figure, you can't really base your your actions on something that you can't prove is a real person. Yes, yes. And in fact, there are many Christians who are surprised to learn, for example, that the Gospels uh, are written by, are, are actually pseudonyms. The, the authors are actually pseudonyms. We, we don't actually know who wrote each one of those Gospels. And in fact, it's very predominant uh, theory within biblical scholars that there is no first-hand witness of Jesus, for example. And so a Christian might base a, a belief in Jesus on the idea that they believe that, well, we have many first-hand witnesses of the existence of Jesus. I mean, it says right in the Bible, it says right on the napkin, that there were over 500 people who witnessed his resurrection. But again, it's written on a napkin, in, in a sense. It's written in a document that we can't even validate the person who wrote it had any firsthand experience with any of that. And so it's just a claim, like any other claim, that needs to be supported as well by its own supporting evidence. Yeah, and in fact, to go one step further with you, if there was a court case where these kinds of things were being debated, the person in the religion, here we're using the example of Christianity, but here the Christian would needs to understand, if there, as, as a believing Latter-day Saint, if you're listening to this episode, what you need to understand is that if such a thing did go to court, that the judge and the jury are actually going to lend evidence to the scholarship. And the scholarship says that we don't know who the authors were. These accounts are written quite late. There are contradictions within these accounts. And as much as the in-group religionist is going to make faith-based claims using the scriptures, or as you point out, the writings on the napkin it's actually the scholarship that's going to win the jury and the judge over. Now, that doesn't mean something's true or untrue. It simply means that one is placing faith, as you point out, rather than confidence. Um, and that's the distinction we're trying to make. Exactly. Yes. So in, in that situation, they are left with the reality that at some point they must appeal to the statement, just got to have faith. It's, it's unavoidable for religious 
faith-based claims, we're kind of making a tautology here, but we're, when we're appealing to faith-based claims, there is no way to get around the fact that you have to say, just got to have faith. And the only reason that you do that is because you do not have the evidence. Any Christian, if I were to say to a Christian, support the notion that cows exist, then instantly they would, they would appeal to all of the facts about cows to support the notion that cows exist. At no point in that conversation would they say, well, you just got to have faith that cows exist. Because we can just appeal to evidence that cows exist. And that's why we, we believe that cows exist because of the evidence that cows exist. We have confidence that cows exist because of the evidence, not faith. At no point do we say, just got to have faith that cows exist. Right. So you make this distinction as you talk about kind of faith um, versus confidence, and and you continually use the words, um, as we've been kind of talking about setting up this interview, you've used the words batshit crazy. Um, I want to get maybe your thoughts on, and and we're already kind of hitting on it, but every time one doesn't have evidence, one goes to the, you just have to have faith. And yet there are so many things in this world that we can have confidence in. And you say in, in the negotiation of this conversation, one needs to realize that anytime we have to fall back to, you just have to have faith, you're, you're in the realm of what you call batshit crazy. Yes. And, and this actually is probably the, perhaps the most difficult uh, concept for a Christian to really wrap their mind around. I, I, I kind of, I don't, I don't want to put it and frame it in like this, but I think it more uh, falls down into the category of doesn't want to understand it. But what, what, I'm, what I'm saying here, as far as the relationship between faith and batshit crazy, is uh, it's relatively simple to understand, but when you live inside of the realm of faith, it's really hard to accept that what I'm saying is probably true. But I like to use an analogy, an amusing analogy in the, in the book, where I take the story of Abraham and Isaac. And so we've got Abraham, uh, uh, you know, we can, we can take all of the, the, the normal elements of the story. Abraham's out there, you know, herding sheep or whatever Abraham does on a normal day, and he's hot out in the field, getting sweaty and everything like that. And when he comes back, uh, at the end of the day, he thinks, well, I'm thirsty, so I'm going to go get myself a glass of water. So he, so he heads over to, uh, to the, the river, nearby river or whatever, and um, all of a sudden out of nowhere there's a flash of light and there's, there's God appears. And so he's standing there looking at God and God's talking to him and, and then God says, hey, uh, Abraham, I, uh, I need you to go get yourself a drink of water. So just, we just take the one element, we just change one element in the story, and all of a sudden, that story is not really an example of supreme faith. Because Abraham was already on his way to get a drink of water. He already has all the evidence in the world that going and getting a drink of water is going to you know, uh, quench his, his uh, thirst, and that he was going to do that anyway. And so there's, there's no Christian anywhere that would use that story as an example of supreme faith. But the story of Abraham slaying Isaac actually is the example. There's, there's multiple times where leaders of the Mormon church refer to the story of Abraham and Isaac as the example of supreme faith. 
And so there's, there's, a, there's a point here where if Abraham was, he was still following the word of God and going and getting himself a drink of water, no one is going to stand up in general conference and go, and look at how amazing Abraham was for, for walking over and getting a drink of water when he was thirsty. So now let's compare that to the actual story where the same exact everything else is happening. He's parched, he's thirsty, he, he uh, starts walking over to the river and God appears and he says, Abraham, I need you to slay your son Isaac. Now, anyone would agree that the, the act of killing your child is by far the most batshit crazy you can possible, thing you can possibly do. There is nothing crazier than a person who is willing to kill their own kid. And so the very notion that Abraham is going to do this based solely on the word of, of his belief that he's being visited by God is literally the most batshit crazy thing that you can possibly do. And so when leaders of the church stand up and tout this story as, look at how amazing the faith of Abraham is, what they're saying is he's willing to do an incredibly batshit crazy thing for the sake of faith. And now, let's kind of just pick somewhere in the middle. Let's just say, there's some, going and getting a drink of water when you're thirsty is literally the most rational thing you can do. Because you're, you're thirsty, you're ready for a drink of water. And so, if we were to say, you're going and killing your kid is literally the most batshit crazy thing you can do. Pick something in the middle, and that's about middle batshit crazy. And so, what we see is we can almost draw a correspondence, not almost, we can literally draw a correspondence between faith and batshit crazy. The more faith that is required in order to accomplish whatever it is that thing that you think that you need to do because of your religious beliefs, uh, the amount of faith that you're putting in is directly correlated to the, the amount of batshit crazy that the, the thing is. The greater the amount of batshit crazy, the greater amount of faith it requires in order to accomplish that thing. And so we can see that in literally everything, no matter what it is that, you, that you're talking about, However much faith it takes to do that is essentially saying it's the amount of evidence that you are lacking and the amount of crazy that that thing would be to do is a one-to-one -one correspondence. So to, to even take your point, maybe to show it a little more um, from, another, from another example to someone who's listening, and I remember this. I remember this when I was in that full orthodox believing perspective. I remember times where I would pick up the newspaper and I would read that a mother uh, drowned her baby in the bathtub because she heard a voice from God telling her to do it. And when I read that article, my, my first initial thought when I read the story is, wow, this lady's mentally ill. This lady is batshit crazy. And yet, when we read the story about somebody else who has a similar experience— from 2,000 years ago, uh, 5,000 years ago, 7,000 years, whatever it is, whatever story you want to pick out of the Bible, when we read those stories that are crazy, we take them for granted as true in our orthodox perspective simply because yeah. other people have said, take this as true. And the reality is, if we take that story out of the religious context of our own belief system— and place it in some other individual that we have no emotional connection to and no theological uh, loyalty to, then immediately our brains know automatically there's no way in hell 
an actual voice came down and spoke to that mother and told her to drown her baby. Instead, she had some kind of mental episode. Sadly, she carried out this voice she heard in her head rather than check herself into a, a hospital and get the help that she very much needed. And, and we all kind of already know that. We, we, we know that based on the fact that the amount of weight we put into the story as to this is an example of supreme faith. And so we, we already know that even with the story of Abraham and Isaac, because, again, if the story was just about him going and getting a drink of water or doing his home teaching or whatever the case is, we would not put the same weight to that story as we do with the fact that he's about ready to kill his kid. And so we, we already know that. We already apply that. We already apply the, the holy moly. That is, that is literally the most crazy thing you can possibly do. Wow, he must, he must have a lot of faith. Right. But at the same time, we also recognize inside our own head, like if I heard a voice or even if I saw an angelic being standing in front of me, commanding me to kill my child. I mean, why? First off, I would go to the hospital and I would say, let's make sure that I'm okay here. And second of all, let me go to my wife, uh, Sarah, and let me talk to her. And say like, hey, I just had this voice. Does that make sense? And, and help me work through the lot. Like all of us who are not mentally unstable would take 20, even the most religion uh, believing Orthodox members of our churches, we would stop and say like, something's not right here. Let me just double check through a few extra steps if this makes sense and if this is actually the right thing to do. And I think all of us would question our sanity first. And when some guy comes along from thousands of years ago, at least a story about this guy, and this guy doesn't question any of that, he just carries it out. You're right. Like we set him up on a mountain. We praise this guy as being obedient and having faith. When the reality is that when we use ration, rationale and logic, none of the rest of us would do that as the next step after hearing that voice. Correct. Yes. Yeah. We, we definitely apply a different standard in that we sort of make the assumption that he is, he is right because of, the, because of the distance in time. But beyond that, it's literally identically the same story. And we already know that the action that he's trying to perform is batshit crazy. So to kind of follow that up, um, we, we recognize like in religion, uh, and I want to be careful here because I think religion serves a lot of positive purposes and, and I don't, I don't want to take people's faith away from them because in some ways religion encourages us in its, in its best moments to go out and serve each other. And it's, the hope that we place in um, what lies on the other side and the blessings that are to come that give some folks that uh, energy to go out and to serve others and to help. And so in this conversation, it could be really easy to say like, hey, religion's completely uh, useless because it calls on us to behave in ways that are based on batshit crazy ideas, maybe talk for a moment about the, the hope and that positive energy that people have to go out and do good in the world and the risk involved in having this conversation and maybe where your thoughts lie in that. Yes. So 
So my, my goal in writing the book is definitely not to take away people's hope. I, I know that, that there are many people who, who are possibly hanging on by a thread, you know, in their life, and it's, religion may be the only thing that's actually keeping them going. And my goal is not to write this to say, stop believing what you're believing. I definitely, you know, want people to live happy lives and, and enjoy their, their beliefs in as much as their beliefs kind of help get them through the day. And for that matter, when we're not even talking about religion, just talking about in life, like there are many times where uh, maybe the, there's, a, there's a business uh, risk that does not, is, is not supported by the evidence. And somebody just really, truly believes in that, in that business risk, that going out there and trying to, to you know, do, do something brand new that nobody's ever done before or whatever. Like, well, in that situation, I, I must uh, conclude that what they are exhibiting right there is faith and not confidence because it's not supported by the evidence. But many of the most wonderful things, you know, new technology that never existed before or new ideas that didn't exist before, new businesses that didn't exist before, that sort of required faith in order to do that. And so I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't try to say that faith is inherently bad or inherently wrong just because someone is exhibiting faith. My, my point, and really the only main point that I want to make with all of this, is that I shouldn't have to be subjected to your faith. And the way that we subject people to faith most frequently is like through the government, through laws, through uh, you know, religious groups trying to push their religious beliefs onto others through the use of the law. Like, for instance, marriage equality that was, you know, uh, the, the big debate that was happening a few years ago, that there, there's literally no, no reason, there's no logical reason. As much as, as much as the attorneys for that situation were trying to argue that, 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 that marriage equality should not have, have been the, the law of the land, ultimately, everyone was essentially drawing back to the rationale of because God says so. In other words, gay marriage is bad because God says so. And so as much as they tried to pin it onto some other sort of rationale, ultimately it's not, it's not convincing rationale because there really is no logic for why that's the case. You know, same-sex couples should be allowed to just get married for exactly the same reasons as anybody else. So, so ultimately they're trying to, they, they, have a, they have a faith-based reason for wanting to push that belief onto others through the law. As far as I'm concerned, as long as people are not pushing their faith onto others through the law or pushing their faith onto others through some other means, believe whatever you want, I don't really care. It doesn't make it, it, it matters not to me in the least degree what people believe as long as they're not going out and forcing other people to live like they want to live uh, because of their beliefs. Yeah, and so, I, and I want to... Yeah, I want to I want to share maybe an idea here which is a piece of middle ground cuz I want to see where you fall. Um there's this idea that you're you're talking about which is as long as your faith only affects the other people who hold the same faith as you, like fine, but don't let it interfere with anybody outside your faith. And and here's the the issue I would raise because it's a deep concern of mine, which is a believer who, for whatever reason, doesn't fit in the group. So using Mormonism as an example, uh, an LGBT uh, youth in the church, the person believes the church is true, but is also having an identity issue because the church is holding ground that is compelling them 
to um, diminish their own identity in order to belong and fit in the group. And when such things happen, stress and trauma uh, are imposed institutionally to the individual because that person is sacrificing their identity in order to fit in the tribe. And we know from the data, again, not that Mormonism is the cause, but that it is at least a contributing factor uh, to some of the suicides, for instance, that have happened over the last few years that have been talked about because of the church's increased rhetoric around LGBT issues. And I want to get your thoughts on where you stand. And again, I, I don't know that there's a right or wrong answer um, other than I think we're emotionally pulled into this question and, and we pick sides. Uh, but where, what are your thoughts on those who belong to the group who do, you know, because maybe their, their maturity perhaps, uh, maybe because they've not had a chance yet in their life to uh, involve themselves in critical thinking that allows them to step outside the tribe and see beyond the tribe and outside of it. Uh, folks who are believers, they're in, they, they think that that faith is the one true faith. And at the same time, they're enduring uh, trauma and harm at the hands of an institution when the reasons for that trauma and harm being inflicted are based on things that eventually fall back to, we just need to have faith. Yes, and I think this is a really great question. And I definitely agree that this is not a, not a simple question either. But I think that the key to this is that uh, there, like, I guess the, the one uh, argument that, that believers will often try to make in this is, well, why don't they just leave? If they don't, if they, if they're gay and they, and they, you know, it's, it's causing them trauma, why don't they just leave? But it's not really that simple, is it? Because if they have been indoctrinated their entire life to be told that, that homosexuality is bad, you are, you are sinful for being gay and you are going to burn in hell for all eternity for this. And that's basically the story that they have been told their entire life. They're being pulled by two very strong forces. First, their sexuality, and second, this belief that they've been indoctrinated with their entire life. And so I would, I would say definitely that once you have reached the point that your, religious, uh, your, your religion has now become a community, you have some responsibility to address this problem, that, that, that the Mormon church has a responsibility to have to deal with this. Um, and so, you know, they, they have their Mormons and gays website and whatnot, but I, I don't think it really goes far enough to address the, 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 the real problem that's going on here, which is that they have put the kids into this situation because of their kind of hardline black or white uh, indoctrination that leads them to believe that they are evil people for, uh, for having a natural sexual tendency. So, so yeah, so, so they they definitely hold some responsibility for that. Right. And, and I've, as I've sat and listened to kind of our first half of this conversation, as I've tried to frame where I come out on this question, because I think this question is really important in this conversation and, and not just with the LGBT issue, take any religion and any segment of membership within that religion 
that finds itself on the margins, finds itself not quite fitting in. My, my argument, and I think it was right in line with what you're saying, which is that any time an institution causes harm or trauma to someone else, and the reasons for that harm being caused fall back to eventually, if you walk the logic out, to you have to have faith, then I would be really hesitant to ever say that such a thing um, is okay, even if it's within the group of believers. Like anytime you have to say like, well, yeah, but God said so, uh, or yeah, the scriptures say it. And, and again, if it was in a court of law and there's a judge and there's a jury, and as the questions walk those positions back and eventually someone has to say, well, we just have to have faith, I would, I would deeply lean towards saying such harm and trauma is uh, not only unnecessary, um, but, but deeply offensive and inappropriate, if that makes sense. Yes. And so, so what I would say is that, that therein lies the dividing line between when, when it matters to me. When, when does it become my business? When does, when does your belief become my business? And I think that this is the dividing line. That as long as your belief, your just got to have faith belief, is just kind of staying inside of your brain and it's just, it has, has no effect on how you're voting, it has no effect on the, 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 the lives of the kids in your community, then you know what, just believe whatever you want. It just, it just really doesn't matter. If you want to believe there are unicorns that live inside of your shoes, it's, it's nothing to me. It doesn't make any difference to me whatsoever. But as soon as the unicorns in your shoes are telling you to vote a certain way that's actually going to affect me, then now you have opened up your belief to be called into question. You, you've opened it up to allow me to say, can you demonstrate that you have unicorns in your shoes? It's, uh, before it didn't matter. Before it didn't make any difference. You want to believe that? That's fine. But if your rationale, your, your, the whole reason why you want to push this law is that you believe unicorns live inside of your shoes, then you need to demonstrate that unicorns actually live inside of your shoes. Right. And it's not that you're saying, like, you still can't vote that way based on your belief. Like, sure, it's a free world. People can vote that way. If people want to impose theology that hurts others or marginalizes people different than them, um, within within at least the law, there's some room to do that. And but you, like you say, but you better understand that you've opened yourself up to your perspective being criticized and being discussed in the public arena and having the merit of your behavior weighed. And so when Mormonism is criticized for hurting and causing trauma, Latter-day Saints who are believers need to recognize that if the reasons for, your, for the harm you're causing, or the proposed harm at least that you're causing, goes back to it's in our beliefs and we have to have faith, then you at least need to understand that you've, by those um, reasoning, by, the, by those reasons, by that reasoning, you've opened yourself up to your behavior being criticized on its merit and you don't get to deflect and dismiss that, it's going to happen and it rightfully so. Exactly. Yes, that is precisely what I am saying. Perfect. Um, I, we're, we're obviously going to hit this from several angles. Your thoughts maybe on what rational thinking 
um, is is to you? Like what what is it? So if if I'm in a if I'm in a group, I'm a Mormon. Let's we'll just keep using Mormonism as the example. But again, I want my audience to recognize like it's so hard to see it when you're in the group. If I'm in Scientology, for instance, and I don't want to debate here in this in this podcast, Spencer, whether Scientology is is you know false or true. We all recognize like Scientology seems a little batshit crazy. But I'm. But if you put yourself in the group of Scientology, it, it you can see if you're raised that way, like oh yeah, I, I believe this, and this all makes sense, and this all adds up for the reasons that a believer makes that work. Um, when you're in the group, it's really difficult when your theology is being called into question to figure out like what is rational arguments for and against. What is rationale? What is logic? And why are my reasons for belief less rational and less logical than the critic who's criticizing my Scientology? Um, Maybe help us as Mormons, because we're in the group, it's hard to see. Help us understand what rational thinking is to you. Okay. Uh, So I lay out kind of a a whole story to to kind of uh, present a description of why we think of rational as rational so in, in the book. And so uh, what I start out by saying is, you know, if, if, you, if you look up a dictionary definition of the word rational, it basically just points to things like other synonyms, like reasonable or, you know, that, that think, things like that. But if you, don't, if you don't know what rational means and you're just looking it up based on the word, you know, reasonable, well, reasonable is essentially rational. And so that doesn't really... Uh, answer the question. It doesn't really solve the problem of what does it mean to be rational. And so, uh, so what I do is I kind of walk back through and give a give a, a history of why we use the word rational in like why why the word rational means what it means in the first place. But the the basic premise of the concept is that rational so a, a rational explanation is an explanation that is uh, answering a question of explaining why we can measure a certain thing. And so it basically boils down to measurement. So we measure something and then we're coming up with the best explanation for that measurement. And this is, this is true in, in every situation. We do not have to explain things that, ha- that haven't been measured. But since the beginning of time, explanation the point of explanation has been to describe things that we can measure. Like, for example, in, uh, in the Hindu faith, there is an explanation for a natural land bridge that exists between uh, the, the, the coast of India and Sri Lanka. There, there's a, a land bridge that exists there, and there, the, the Hindu explanation, the religious Hindu explanation is that Rama uh, needed to build that bridge so he could go over and save his wife, Sita, from, a, from the, the, the evil guy who lived over in Sri Lanka. And so what they're trying to do is they're starting from, from measurement. They're starting from, I see a land bridge. Let me try to explain why there is a land bridge there. And so they're coming up with an explanation. When we see lightning coming down from the skies in ancient Greece, what they're doing is that they're not hypothesizing the existence of lightning. They see lightning. They measure the existence of lightning, and now we're trying to explain why does lightning happen. Well, it happens because Zeus is angry or whatever the case is. And so this is, this is where 
rationale actually starts. Even though what, what I just explained, those stories obviously are not rational, right? We know that uh, Rama did not actually build that, uh, that bridge, and Zeus does not actually hurl the lightning bolts. Uh, but what we are trying to do is to make sense of what we can measure in the world, the phenomenal world. Uh, as, we're, as we're coming up with explanations, the explanation that can best explain what we are measuring by invoking the fewest number of causes is the rational explanation. And so I'm going to say that one more time, but I'm going to actually say that uh, the, the way that, that Einstein actually says it. So I, I mentioned this in the book, that Einstein is actually giving the, this precise definition when he's talking about what is rational. And he says, I have the quote right here, he says, it can scarcely be denied that the supreme goal of all theory, and this is the same thing as saying the explanation, the supreme goal of all theory is to make the irreducible basic elements as simple and as few as possible without having to surrender the adequate representation of a single datum of experience. So in other words, what we're trying to do, what rationale is, is to explain everything that we can see, everything that we can measure, every datum of experience with as few and irreducible basic, basic elements as, as simple and as few as possible. And that is the basis of rationale. So any attempt to explain what's going on in the universe, when we're trying to come up with an explanation, that is the goal that we're shooting for. Yeah, and we're talking today with Spencer Wright, author of How to Think, Why Rational and Faith-Based Thinking Are Incompatible. I, I want to I wanna throw out an idea here, which, which I think is important to address to folks who are listening and coming from, again, a believing perspective. And, I, and I've tried to kind of wrestle with this myself through the last seven years. Once in a while the world, something in the world doesn't happen the way we would naturally assume by the evidence that it happens. And generally what happens is more evidence comes into play and we have to change our assumptions and then we form a new belief. My point being that when it comes to religion, whatever issue, because every religion has questions about its historicity, its theology, um, its policies, procedures, the behaviors it requires of its members. If we take any one issue, Spencer, we can, I think, I think fairly make an allowance that the, that it's possible that the less, less reasonable, the less rational solution could be, turn out to be the right answer. Um, but I want you maybe to speak for a moment on it's one thing to grant that allowance on a single issue that when you suddenly say like here's a hundred issues and i'm constantly having to take the less likely answer maybe your thoughts on if we're going to navigate these kinds of things it's one thing to make space because i'm going to give a good example um that, that applies in real life and has nothing to do with religion. When me and my wife are going through our day, there's times where she misunderstands me because she took what I said to be like the, like the most reasonable, rational, logical way to take what I said a certain way, which was offensive and hurt her feelings. And now she's frustrated with me. 
And if she would give me a chance to kind of explain and talk, I would say like, like, no, no, that's not exactly what happened. Here's what I thought. Here's what I was thinking. Here was, here was why I used the words I did. And, and here's what I meant. And, and you go, oh, okay. You meant something different than I thought. Like it happens all the time. Maybe talk for a moment as you're, as you're working through something as complex as a religion or a complicated problem at work. If you constantly run into having to take the less rational answer on a bunch of issues rather than just one and like how suddenly maybe there really isn't um, the space to continue to do that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, so, so just to jump back to something that you had said before, where you're saying, well, sometimes on a particular issue, you, you may have to kind of go with the, you know, provide space for the less likely answer. And so what I would say to that point is, even if we were to just take one issue, just single issue by itself, and say that you are appealing to the less likely answer, you are actually already engaging in irrationality. So that rationality is not just a, an answer that suffices, you know, su- is sufficient to explain all of the data. It's the one that can do it with the fewest uh, causes. So when we're trying to say, what, what brought this mountain here? What brought this lightning here? What brought this, this natural land bridge here? Whatever. As soon as you have introduced an unnecessary cause into that explanation, your explanation is irrational. And let, let, me give you an, let me give you an example here. So let's say that I am sitting in my, my kitchen and my cat is, has climbed up on the table and I see the cat swipe his paw and knock a glass off the table and the, and the, and the glass breaks. And so now, again, I, I have, I have uh, measured something in the phenomenal world. I have, I have measured a glass falling onto the table and breaking. And so I'm asking now, what is the cause of the glass falling and breaking uh, off the table. And so that, that, is the, that is the basis of rationality, right? So we're measuring something and we're coming up with the, the, best, explana- the best possible explanation for what, what it is that we've measured. Well, I have also measured a cat and I measured the cat swiping its paw. And so I don't really need to, to go any further than that in order to explain what it was that caused the, the, the glass to fall off the table and break. I have an explanation. And that explanation, barring a simpler explanation, by simpler I mean fewer causes. If I can explain the same thing with fewer causes, then that is the, the rational explanation for why the glass fell off and broke. Now somebody else could say, but wait a second. We have to allow space for the possibility that an alien was sending a telepathic message to the cat to to swipe its paw and knock the glass off the table. And I have to conclude that I cannot rule that out. There's there's no way, actually, for me to rule out the possibility that an alien sent a telepathic message to the cat so that the cat would swipe its paw and knock off the glass. But there's not one part of that additional explanation to what I just said that is necessary in order to explain the glass falling off the table. It's, It's utterly unnecessary. It's completely totally unnecessary in order to explain it. I already have a sufficient explanation. It's, a, it's an explanation that covers all the data and is the fewest causes. And so therefore, it's not just that both of these are, well, they're semi, you know, the, the alien is less likely. As soon as we say less likely, what we're actually saying is it's irrational, that it's no longer a rational explanation for what happened. 
I love that. And as I go back into my own scenario, two things. One is that if we live our life based on irrational thinking, we all grasp that doesn't make a lot of sense. Like every day, we make decisions in our mind on what is the most rational way to interact with the world from moment to moment. And if we if we act in a way that says, like, I'm going to start walking around and taking the less likely assumptions, the less likely uh, reasons for why things operate the way they do, we all quickly recognize that that person on some level is mentally unstable. And yet somehow in religion, that's the very way in which we live. Second is that in the example I gave where I'm having this disagreement with my wife, the moment new information comes in and makes another explanation the more simple explanation. Because the moment I stop my wife and say, hey, can I explain my side of the story? Here's what I was thinking. Here's what these words mean to me. Here's how I came into the situation and here's why I behaved. I've added evidence to the case now where she can now say like, oh, that is now the simpler or more rational explanation is to change my mind and believe this other um, this other set of things. And so as you point out, it's not about walking around and making space for the less likely. Rather, the way the world works is when new information comes in, we are now given a more rational explanation and that's why we go to changing our belief from one thing to another. Yes, exactly. And th- there's something that al- that almost uh, always pops up in com- the conversations that I have around this topic, where people will say, "But Occam's razor says the simplest answer is usually the right answer." But that you know that's just not true sometimes because sometimes the answer is much more complicated than what somebody tries to originally say. Like if we were to say, "Well, how does lightning work?" and say, "Well, the the much simpler explanation is Zeus." than to actually go through and explain the science of how, how lightning actually works. And the point is, is that, first of all, William of Ockham didn't actually say the simplest answer is, is usually right. He, he actually didn't say that. He actually said something much more similar to what, uh, what Einstein said. He actually said, plurality is not to be posited without necessity. So plurality, in this case, what he's saying is a plurality of causes. So he's saying, uh, don't assume that there's an alien talking to the, you know, sending a telepathic message to the cat, because it's not necessary. I already have an explanation, and so stop there. But the explanation itself, it may, it may require, you know, like what you're saying in your example with your wife, the actual explanation may be more complicated to explain all of the data. But it's not, the, it's not the complication of the explanation. It's that I'm using fewer causes in order to explain what's going on. But the more that you have to keep kind of drawing on, well, and, and, and this is actually where, like, uh, conspiracy theories kind of fall apart, is that conspiracy theories always sort of end up assuming some sort of facts that we have no evidence for itself. Well, there's some secret conspiracy. Well, that we didn't really land on the moon, for example. And so how, how is it that everyone in NASA and everyone in government and everybody since the beginning of you know, the, the space program, not one of them has ever like, come out and, and, and you know, revealed the secret? Well, they all are part of a secret cabal and whatever. It's like, well, we don't have evidence of that secret cabal, but I now have to believe in that secret cabal in order to make the theory true that we didn't actually travel to the moon. 
the simplest answer, when we say the simplest answer in this case, that is that we actually went to the moon. And that's because I have to assume fewer causes in order to make all of the data make sense. I don't have to make the secret cabal make sense because I don't even have any evidence of the secret cabal to begin with. Right. And if we take this back to Mormonism, um, and, and I don't know that if you, you know, we didn't talk about using this as an example, but I want to at least throw it out and maybe get your two cents. But take, take any of the problematic issues, and the one I'm going to pick is the Book of Abraham. Um, here's my, my issue. Favorite. Right. Which, yeah. And, and here's the issue is that Joseph Smith says certain things about how the translation occurs. And when now we know that what he said doesn't fit with the evidence. So what the church has done and what its apologists have done, and the church I mean through its LDS.org gospel topic essays, is it's created a multitude, I think there's four or five uh, solutions they present to the issue. In other words, they're acknowledging like, yeah, this doesn't add up, and, and here's some other possibilities. So as you point out, they're already engaging in like the irrational, like here's the logical conclusion but if you are willing to take a less logical conclusion, here's some other possibilities. So for instance, in spite of Joseph saying that the Egyptian papyri is the book of Abraham written by his own hand, the church uh, posits that there's this catalyst theory, which means that Joseph was deceived. Joseph thought he was working with the uh, Egyptian papyri and the facsimiles and that those were the book of Abraham, when in reality, God allowed him to uh, be deceived. Not that God necessarily deceived him, but God allowed Joseph to be deceived in order to receive the book of Abraham text. And I know lots of apologists who uh, adhere to that particular explanation. As you point out, it's, it's irrational you're already having to take the evidence and say, yeah, let's set the evidence aside. There's some other thing happening which we don't have any evidence for, and that must be the way it occurs because that explanation allows me to keep maintaining this particular belief. And I would argue, I, I took, um, so in my last ward, again, our family's been inactive since last December, but in our last ward, I was serving as the financial clerk. And a member of the bishopric and I would take the tithing to the bank every week and every time we would do this, we'd have these conversations about some of these issues in Mormonism. He's a believer, and he's also a science teacher. And on one of these car rides, we're talking about the book of Abraham. And he asked, like, what are the solutions? And I share with him, like, this is what apologists offer. They offer this, 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 and this. And the LDS.org gospel topic essay presents these four or five possible solutions. And then I looked at him and I said, but when somebody offers you four or five solutions to a problem and he cut me off and he goes, that means they don't have any. Um, and, I, and I think that's an important point to grasp. If you don't have a solid reason for why something happened other than what the critics are arguing, if you have to offer more than one solution, you're already agreeing that your solutions are irrational because you don't have one to set next to their issue and say, this one has just as much evidence. Instead, you're saying like, well, here's these other possibilities. You're already acknowledging like there's some irrationality and having to continue to make this belief work. Yes. 
And, and actually, in your examples, you're kind of bringing up another important point, which is the, kind of the flip side of Einstein's comment. So, so in each one of these examples, they're, they're not only introducing new uh, like claims of evidence, like for instance, one of, the, one of the theories is that there was a long scroll and so it's possible, you know, again, they're throwing it out there, it's possible, we've got to open the space for the possibility that Joseph was actually translating actual ancient Egyptian characters, but just from a portion of a scroll that we don't have access to anymore. And so they're, they're appealing to the concept of something out there, that secret cabal again, that we don't have evidence to for itself, but we have to assume existed in order to make the theory work. So they're, they're appealing to, to measurements that don't even exist in, in order to make the claim work. And I think there's, there's an argument to be made that, well, there was a person who, who claimed that there was a long scroll, and long is a pretty subjective term to begin with, uh, but they're using that as sort of their evidence that there was something else out there that actually is the, is the evidence. But the flip to this, the flip to Einstein's quote is, what he says is you have to explain all of the data. You have to explain everything that is measured. So not only are they trying to introduce uh, claims of things that are not measured, they're not actually even acknowledging everything that is measured. For example, the, there, there are many members of the church who themselves uh, will, will instantly say, well, I don't, I mean, I'm not an, I'm not an Egyptologist. I don't know. And so what they're trying to do is basically deflect all of the evidence that there's literally not one thing that Joseph Smith um, uh, translated that is, that is accurate. That there, there is no evidence whatsoever that he could accurately translate uh, e Egyptian language, ancient Egyptian language. Uh, Mormon Egyptologists acknowledge this. Uh, Non-Mormon Egyptologists acknowledge this. There, there's no reason whatsoever to conclude that in any way he got it right. There's actually, we don't even have to, like the long scroll theory is, is semi-irrelevant because we have several examples where we have the actual text that he was trying to translate and his attempted translation, and we know that they're wrong. Like, for example, in facsimile 3, we have the actual text above the, the, the figures, the people in facsimile 3, where Joseph Smith says that that is the pharaoh as is written above the pharaoh's hand or whatever the case is. In the Kirtland Egyptian papers, there's also another example where it says, it, these are called, this was the Kataman story, the, the story of the princess named Kataman. And, uh, and in, those, in that example, it says a translation of the characters on the following page. And it, then it says something about this princess named Cadman. Well, we can look at the characters that were written on the next page. And of course, they don't say anything about anyone named Cadman. They were actually uh, related to the funerary scroll for um, a, a person named Amenhotep. And so, uh, so we, we, we already know that he could not translate Egyptian. The attempt, every example that we have of his attempt to translate Egyptian, where we have his attempt and the, and the actual text itself, we already know that he's wrong. So there's, there's no reason to appeal, there's no need to appeal to some long scroll in order to explain what was actually happening here. We can just, the, this, the answer that it can explain all of the data, everything, every bit of data, is that he just simply couldn't translate Egyptian. And so any other theory has to appeal to some other data that we don't actually have. Yeah, and I hope the listener also uh, grasps um, in what you just said, 
if I walked into a courtroom and I told the judge and jury that that you guys have got to make space for missing evidence. Here's the missing evidence. I mean, it's missing. I don't have it. But if you guys would just make space that there is evidence missing, and this might be what the evidence is, then then you would understand that there's a different conclusion to be drawn. All of us would grasp that that is irrational. And yet, yes. on something like the Book of Abraham, that's exactly what we do. We go into the uh, hypothetical courtroom, and we say, there's a missing scroll. And if we had the missing scroll, all of us would be able to see that Joseph nailed it. Or, in spite of the evidence that Joseph was translating directly from this, or at least that he claimed he was translating directly from this Egyptian papyri, um, if you guys would just make evidence that something else happened besides what Joseph claimed, you would see that this has another possible conclusion. Nobody ever would allow that. And I think, Spencer, you, this is a huge point, because if a believer can at least acknowledge, like, okay, my belief is irrational, and it would not hold up for those reasons, because I'm, I'm asking the jury and the judge to accept that there's evidence that nobody here has or knows about for sure, and we want to base our decision on that. Nobody, nobody would find that a rational way to operate. And every single time the judge and jury would say, sorry, but you've lost. And so if we can put these sacred beliefs to it, because they are sacred to us and they're important. We want to hold them there. They make us comfortable. They give us peace. They bring um, happiness and joy into our life. But at the same time, if we recognize we're asking people to to change their mind, to change their belief, to um, operate based on evidence that you're positing might exist, but which we don't, again, have any evidence for, uh, that's not a fair way to ask people to operate. It is, in fact, irrational. And as you point out, perhaps even batshit crazy. Yes. And you'll notice that in the two, the two possible ways in which we are approaching the data, that there's a very clear delineation between how people are going about doing this. So the, the, the rational approach of trying to explain all of the data with the fewest possible causes is the rational approach. But when we're looking at the irrational approach, why is that a, why is that a little irrational or what's actually going on when they're doing that? Uh, you, you touched on something. I don't remember exactly what you said, but, oh, they're holding on to a, their, 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 their hope and their belief, and, and that's the reason kind of why they want to leave it open and leave space for the possibility that their belief is right. But what they're actually doing there is instead of starting with the data, and working toward the best conclusion for the available data. What they're doing is starting with a conclusion and working backwards from the conclusion. And so one of the, one of the, one of the, um, the fallacies that must uh, be in place in order for a religious belief to hold any sort of water whatsoever is you must start with the conclusion. 
And so you may, it's the same thing like a conspiracy theory or whatever the case is. We start with a conspiracy that nobody, no, no one's ever been to the moon, and then we work backwards. Well, okay, start asking these questions. Well, why is it that no one's ever come out and, you know, displayed the stage where they, where they filmed, you know, the, the, the fake moon landing and everything like that? Well, it's because of the secret cabal. It's like you now have to start making up other things that, uh, to, that to help support your conclusion rather than the actual measurable evidence. And so in every religious claim, this whole, this whole concept of saying, just got to have faith, is because you started with the conclusion and then worked backwards. And in, in the process of working backwards, you realize, I don't have all the evidence for that. That's the reason why I said, just got to have faith in the first place. Again, we, we recognize that somewhere out in the world, a, there might be a conspiracy theory that holds up that's actually true. We, we recognize that somewhere out in the world, the, at some point, a, the less likely conclusion actually does turn out to be true. But neither of those are reason for why we would operate from the position then to assume that all less likely answers are true. And, and if you're only choosing the ones within your religion to say like, yeah, I mean, I get that, but in my religion, yes, all the less likely answers are true. You, you got to grasp that you're still operating from a deeply irrational, and as you point, crazy perspective. Nobody in the world would do that. And so there are lots of these kinds of issues in Mormonism um, another example would be like, um, uh, priesthood blessings, restoring limbs. Like we read in the scriptures that Jesus touches the guy's ear after Peter cuts it off and it's healed. And we like to argue that that same priesthood power exists. And yet if we ask for anybody to step forward, who's had a limb restored or an ear cut off restored or an eyeball plucked out and magically put back in or a, a finger is completely cut off and someone gets a priesthood blessing and it's completely back on by the time everybody opens their eyes back up, nobody steps forward. It hasn't happened. And when you ask a believer, they simply say, well, I'm sure it did happen. It's somewhere out there. It's just not within my circle of, of knowledge, my circle of awareness. It doesn't happen within, you know, these things are kept secret. They're sacred. Again, recognize the same logics happening, which is you're picking an irrational conclusion when, when you look at simply the data and you look around and say, like, does anybody know anyone who's had a limb restored? And is there any way we can sit down with that person and see any evidence of that story? It doesn't exist. So to make room for evidence that you don't know about, that's not in your awareness is irrational. And this happens yeah. constantly. Yes. Um, I, I want to get your thoughts. Are there, are there other ways I, I bounced forward? I want to bounce back and I'm happy to have you share other examples or talk about the one I just shared, but maybe your thoughts on, um, the incompatibility of faith and rationale and maybe tying it to this idea of how irrational, uh, we often are within our religious in-group. Yes, and, and actually, before I do that, I want to jump back to something that you said before, like that the 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 actual explanation might actually be the irrational answer, 
And this is kind of, to be fair, to faith-based thinking, because it is possible. I, I have to acknowledge that it is possible that we never actually went to the moon. I, I have to acknowledge the possibility, because I, I don't know, like in an ontological sense, whether or not we actually went to the moon. But really, to, 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 that, you know, the, to that same point, there are many, many things that we don't know with absolute certainty. It's possible God is testing us with all of the, you know, the, how there's just a really, really simple explanation for the book of Abraham. And he just wants you to have faith, right? He just wants you to believe that Joseph Smith was a prophet, even though the, the answer is so stupidly simple that everything can be accounted for by just a normal guy from the 19th century who claimed to be able to translate Egyptian, who couldn't actually translate Egyptian. All of it can be answered and explained in that way. But I don't know with absolute certainty that that's the reality of the situation. However, I cannot operate under any other condition other than what the data actually demonstrates. And so if some, if some other data comes along that, that actually demonstrates, oh, wow, he really could translate Egyptian, then I would change my, my view on Joseph Smith's ability to translate Egyptian because there would be new data that can no longer be accounted for by the simpler explanation. And so it's certainly possible, and I have to acknowledge the possibility that the true answer, the actual answer that exists independent of anyone's theories about reality is what would actually be at this point the more complicated explanation. However, we can't operate like that. We can't live our lives like the, the, under the, the belief that, and it's exactly what you were saying before, the people who do this, who actually do this in real life, who really truly go out and behave as though uh, the less rational answer is actually accurate, do come off appearing like the, you know, it's the, it's the batshit crazy. And so, and, and in fact, you kind of notice that people who, uh, who, who believe in these claims, believe in the religious claims, when it comes down to the practicalities of life, don't behave according to that sort of philosophy that, well, let's go with the less rational answer. So like a, a business owner who may happen to also be a religious person, when they're going out and trying to run the business, they're not they're not choosing the less likely answer and saying we need to stay open for the less likely answer. You know, in their day-to-day, how do they actually interface with reality? He's looking for the most rational answer. He's looking for the most rational explanation for, for everything in the way that he does his business. He's trying to actually minimize risk and, you know, choose the option that's going to make him the most money. And so he's not going out there and going, but let's hold open the possibility that this thing is going to be the best choice for, for making money. Because he knows that that's not rational. He knows that in actuality it's not rational. So the point of all that is, yes, of course, we can say the most, the, the actual answer may, may actually be the, the less rational answer to us. But that's not the answer that we actually behave when we're actually trying to live our lives. Right, right. None of us would live our life on that kind of framing that, hey, the less likely answer is, could be the right one, so I should, I should always make space. We're just not going to do that. That doesn't, that doesn't mean that once in a great while that doesn't happen uh, in terms of the less likely answer being right. But as you point out, it's not a framing any of us in our, in our standard day-to-day life operate on other than within a religious paradigm or 
um, maybe like a political one where we're taking sides. Anytime there's an in-group, out-group, and we want so bad to be right that we come up with reasons for why that might still work. And, and yet when we don't have those stakes in the game, none of us do that. And so we ought to yeah. recognize the irrationality of simply needing one's conclusions to be true, that you're willing to make irrational space for them. Yep. If you want to know what reality actually is, you go with the rational answer. You measure the, you measure the data and you come up with the best explanation for the data. If you want to be right, you start with your own conclusion and then you work backwards and include theories that, that cannot be supported by the data. Which, by the way, this to me just is funny and it, demonst- it, it, it demonstrates the point we're making. Uh, Kerry Molstein is an Egyptologist. He works for uh, BYU. He is essentially the chief expert that the church and its apologists usher out to speak on the book of Abraham that we just spoke about. And Kerry has acknowledged uh, to, to a, an audience at BYU that he does start with the conclusion that the church is what it claims to be and then he works backwards from there, which to me seems an absurd position for a scholar to take. So I'd like to be clear about my beginning assumption. I believe Revelation is a valid source of knowledge. Uh, we should pursue things with our mind, but we should also pursue it with the part of our mind that listens to the Holy Ghost. And so I start out with an assumption that the Book of Abraham and the Book of Mormon and anything else <coughs> excuse me, that we get from uh, the restored gospel is true. Therefore, any evidence I find, I will try and fit into that paradigm. I don't feel that I need to defend that paradigm. I feel that I want to understand the evidence that I find within that paradigm because to me it's a given that it's true. And then people wonder why uh, other Egyptologists look at him as not credible because yeah. he starts with the conclusion and then figures out a way to make um, the evidence and data suit his conclusion. And he acknowledges that. It's not, I'm not making a, I'm not spreading a rumor that's false. I'm, it's out of his own mouth that he starts with that conclusion and works backwards. And as you point out, that's irrational uh, to do it that way. The only somebody who needs to hold their belief and we'll do that so at all costs, does that, and we don't do that in our day-to-day lives. Yes, yeah. The, the, the difference between a rational conclusion and an irrational conclusion cannot be more stark. The way that we go about approaching the data is the basis of whether or not we are committed to rationality or if we're committed to our belief. Yeah. Mm. Um, I wanted to ask you, and again, we can, you know, skip areas if you need to or whatnot, but I, I, you, there's this idea of specific ways in which faith and rationality are incompatible. I, I'd kind of gone forward in our outline. I'm bouncing back now to this point. Is there anything else you want to talk about there in terms of uh, other ways in which we might grasp um, by the framing that you're giving us how our faith, the things that perhaps are irrational, like how that and rationality are different, how, how they're incompatible? Yeah, so, so there, the, 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 the premise of the book is that 
I cannot hold a rational thought and a faith-based thought at the same moment in time in my brain. Whether I'm otherwise an intelligent person, I, I'm, a, I'm a business owner who I obviously I make rational decisions for my business and everything like that, that, that I can still have irrational thoughts. And so some of the qualities of irrational thoughts we, we can kind of describe some of the qualities of, the, of what makes a thought irrational, and we can see very simply that you can't have that thought in your brain the same time as a rational thought. And so some, some examples uh, would be like just saying, I'm open to being wrong versus I am not open to being wrong. You, you just simply cannot do both of those things at the same moment in time. So if you say, like, I, I have you know, uh, religious friends and family who basically will say, well, no, no matter what, I know that I'm right. And nothing that you say could possibly ever change my mind. So that's one of the conditions, that's one of the qualities that essentially help hold their belief together is the, the inability to open your mind to possibly being wrong. And so you can't possibly do those two things at the same time. I can't possibly say, yeah, I'm open to, to hearing how, I'm, how I could be wrong. And at the same exact time say, it is impo- I will not change my mind. There's nothing you can possibly say that will ever change my mind. It's, it's impossible to hold those two positions at exactly the same moment in time. And, you know, just as we've been talking about the example of the, the two ways to approach data, it's impossible to approach the data in both of those ways at exactly the same time. I can't start with a conclusion and work backwards and start with the data and work to a conclusion. I can't do that at the, at the same. I can I could look at both of them, you know, each individually, and and over here I'm going to start with the data and work toward the, toward a conclusion, and I can also then at another moment in time start with the conclusion and work backwards. But I can't do those things at the same time. But the 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 first way, which is starting with the data and working toward the conclusion, is the rational way to approach data. It's the rational way to imp- approach measurement and explanation for the measurement. But the irrational way is starting with a conclusion and working backwards. I can't do those at the same time. And so, like, like for instance, uh, in like our courtroom case that we were talking about, we say, okay, my goal is to present the, the conclusion that my, my client is innocent or whatever the case is. Uh, I'm, I have, I'm committed to demonstrating this via the, the facts and the logic surrounding the facts all by itself. That my goal is to do it in that way, to say I am committed to, to showing via the evidence that my client is innocent versus I am committed to my client being innocent at all costs and so no matter what I'm going to throw out, just got to have faith or whatever it takes in order to say that. They're, just, they're incompatible. It's impossible to hold to both of those things at the same time. Right, right. And yet for because, again, I can't stress enough uh, to the listener, like, I, I get it. We have certain things that we, we hold sacred. They're our sacred cows. They're, they're our beliefs, and they're precious to us. But if we can kind of grasp, Spencer, what you're saying, which is if, if, if we operate from the framing that I just I have to have these things be true, they give meaning to my life. They, they uh, help me to negotiate the world, and I need these things to be true. And and so, I'm un, I'm unwilling on some level, like you point out, like you can't have both at the same time because we do. We say it. We say like, no, 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 no. I'm a truth seeker. I'm open to information. And 
And then right after we say that, we also say, but I've had so many spiritual experiences and I've had uh, so much evidence from the blessings that God has given me that uh, there's just no shaking my testimony. And as you point out, that's, there's a contradiction there going on within somebody. And I would only ask like that, we, that if an individual is listening going like, yeah, I do that. Like on one hand, uh, these beliefs, I know they're true and I'm not going to, I'm not going to move from that position. On the other hand, I'm a truth seeker and, and I, I welcome new information. Um, that's a contradiction and we're not being fully honest with ourselves. There is some uh, recognition that we're being pulled in two different directions and, and we're not true. If we're stating both of those things, we're really not open to, to asking ourselves, like, maybe this doesn't fit. And am I willing to hear the evidence that says this doesn't go together the way I think it does? Um, I, I do want to hit on this point, Spencer, this idea. Um, you talk about uh, a Steve, I don't know how you pronounce his last name. Is it, is it Gold or Goulds? Oh, Stephen, Stephen J. Gold, yeah. Yeah. So Stephen Gold, uh, you talk about his non-overlapping magisteria. Um Often when I run into apologetics, what I run into is that people try to put religion and, say, science into two different areas. In other words, yeah. they, don't, they don't overlap. You can't use one to judge the other. They're two completely separate um, arenas, and they yeah. address different truths. And so while uh, science tells us the the how of everything then they'll come in and say but religion tells us the why and or religion tells us how to to deal with each other on a uh, emotional or behavioral level when science tells us maybe how the world works and fits together maybe talk about how we try to split those up and what your thoughts are on that idea yeah, so so certainly like uh, like Sam Sam Harris tries to argue that actually science can get into the world of values as well, and I, I'm not I'm not entirely sure I can a hundred percent agree with what he's saying. I think he is kind of begging the question ever so slightly to to make that argument as well, but. The, certainly, this this goes into like David Hume's is ought problem, which is essentially saying, well, we can measure the way that the world is, but we can't come up with a we can't tie that to the way that the the world the way the world ought to be, and so like this concept of values as opposed to to physical measurement, there there may be some truth to that to say we just value like why why is murder wrong? Well, murder is wrong because we don't want to die. But ultimately, when we're saying that, what we're saying is we value staying alive, right? And, and there's, no, there's, there's not really an explanation. We can't say, why do we value staying alive? Well, and would murder be wrong if we didn't value staying alive? So in, so in that regard, they are kind of two separate worlds. It, to, to say that uh, the way that the world is and the way that the world ought to be are kind of, kind of a non-connected sort, sorts of, of uh, realities, values versus, versus measurable reality. However, that is not the way that science, I'm sorry, that's not the way that religious claims operate at all. Like when we say uh, Joseph Smith claimed to have golden plates, 
this is this is a religious claim, but it's also a religious claim that is in theory measurable, because we have you know eleven witnesses who claim to have seen physical golden plates, and so that claim is a religious claim, and it is a in theory scientific claim because he's saying there is a physical artifact there that is measurable that those people measured. When he says, I saw God and Jesus, that is, a, that is a, a claim about reality. That is a physical claim about reality. And we can say, well, it all just happened in his mind. But then now we have the question of, if it all just happened in his mind, then maybe it was just a delusion to begin with. Uh, we've been talking about the book of Abraham. That is a physical claim about reality. He is physically claiming that he was able to uh, translate the the characters on the papyri and and uh, come up with a uh, a translation that conveys the meaning that was originally written on the papyri, you know, however many thousands of years ago. And so it's uh, yeah. In in the case of values, when we're talking about how do I draw my values about life, why do I think murder is wrong, different things like that, I would actually agree that they are different domains. But that's not that's not what religion really does. Religion is not just a question of values. It's a it's 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 a claim of supernatural touching upon the natural. So anytime a a prophet claims to have uh, have had a vision of God, or that they, there's you know the parting of the Red Sea, or you know 90% of the stories that happen when Jesus performs his miracles, turns water into wine. These are all examples of a religious claim spilling over into the natural world. And so, no way, they're, they're, they are absolutely uh, not separate domains in that regard. And so, in that same regard, that when we have something like this, we have an artifact of the Book of Abraham and the papyrus, we, that's not just a spiritual claim. That is, a, that is a, a claim about the natural world, and we can test that scientifically. Right. And as you point out, every religion does this. So whether I'm looking at uh, the Bhagavad Gita and its stories about how the earth was created or any time it shares a historical event that it imposes uh, happened as, as reality, um, on some level, there is an ability to dive into that and see if the historicity of that claim holds up. Now, the, the evidence may be largely uh, non-existent. And, and again, so we say like, so we just need to have faith because we can't prove it one way or the other. The reality is that there's levels of evidence. And again, those levels of evidence still make um, choosing to believe in something for which there is no historical evidence of that figure. And, and I should stop here and say, Christians will often make the argument, for instance, that the Bible actually does present historical evidence. For instance, if they say Moses existed and Moses existed in the town named such and such, if we can prove that town existed, that means that there's evidence that Moses was real. And that really isn't, that really isn't how those kinds of arguments work. If you went into a courtroom and said, I know the flying spaghetti monster is real because somebody claims the flying spaghetti monster lived in Texas and Texas is real. We recognize right away that that's an absurd claim. 
Um, yeah. we, Harry, Harry Potter, Harry Potter lived in London and London is real. So the, the, by the same logic, Harry Potter is real. Right. So yeah. we, we need to recognize that when we're having these conversations, any time the essential fact being debated, for instance, in what I just said, the existence of Moses or what you said, the existence of Harry Potter, we need to recognize what evidence really counts and what evidence doesn't. Um, I think we've already pointed out, I don't want to hit on this for too long, but the idea that irrational arguments, irrational uh, support for one's beliefs, this isn't just a religious issue, although I think we find it very strongly within religion. Um, as I think I pointed out earlier, and I think you certainly would make the argument for, this exists all over the world, politics, sports. And I'll give one example, and I'll let you riff on that for a moment. But um, I'm a huge Cleveland Browns fan. Uh, I'm a big professional football fan, love the Cleveland Browns. I've loved them ever since I was a little kid and and watched my Cleveland Browns lose uh, three AFC championship games in four years to the Denver Broncos and John Elway. And every year I get excited. Every year, Spencer, I'm, I'm, I'm seriously, I get excited. Like right now I'm excited. Our, our draft has happened. We're going to go into training camp in a month. And I just know, I know my Browns, this is the year. They're going to turn it around. And for practically two decades, um, they've been a horrible football team. And the odds makers at Vegas, who I think operate on rationality, uh, yeah. have placed my Cleveland Browns as slim to none to win the AFC North this year. And uh, But I'm still a believer. I still think it's going to happen. Um, but I also can step back and say, yes, my excitement is because I'm a fan, short for fanatic, which yeah. already recognizes I'm operating out of uh, an irrational space. That's crazy, um, yeah. Right, I, right. I'm batshit crazy for thinking my Browns are going to win the AFC North, and yet I still f- hope that. But yeah. I also now, in, in the midst of this conversation, um, can easily connect the dots and say, while I hope it, I'm having faith in it, I also recognize it is completely irrational. Um, it is going to stop me from hoping. It is going to stop me from having this positive thought going into the season. Um, but I also recognize that, uh, everybody else in the world, I'm not going to be able to convince them. My Browns are going to win the AFC North cause it's, it's highly unlikely and the evidence doesn't support it. Yes. And I would say on, on one side, absolutely. My goal is not to stop people from hoping because I, I think people need something to get them up in the morning and, and give them some sort of reason to live and, and enjoy life. And you, you love your Cleveland Browns, and I don't want to take away your hope, your, your, your love of the Cleveland Browns by, uh, by writing this book. That's not, my, that's not my goal. My goal is to point out that you, to, to help people recognize that it is an irrational thought in the first place. To, to be able to, to, to draw a distinction between your hope that they win and the facts about the likelihood of them actually winning. And so if a person is capable of doing that with their religious belief, that's actually fine with me. Because if they can say, hey, you know what, I know this is irrational. I know my belief is not rational. It's just something that kind of gets me through the day and makes me happy and whatever. Then I would say, you know what, great, enjoy your life. Enjoy your hope, and and you know, hope every day is a happy. You know, you're so you just can't wait to see aliens pop up because you just really believe today's the day the aliens are going to appear. I think that's whatever. That's fine. It's only when that belief starts affecting me that I have a problem with it. 
And so to the degree that someone can say, hey, I just really believe the Cleveland Browns are going are gonna to make it, it's, it's nothing to me. You just, I'm, I'm glad that you have that, you know, that, that joy and, and that, that you know, enjoyment of the, the sport, and that's fantastic. But if you started writing laws that were affecting me based on that belief, now we have a problem. Now, now I'm going to call into question the, the basis of that belief so that we can point out, look, you can't write laws based on your belief that the Cleveland Browns are going to win the, the, the title this year. You can't. Just stop. It's not rational. If it's just you just want to be happy, go for it. Great. Be happy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to begin to kind of wrap up. I want to talk for a moment about apologetics within Mormonism and some of the fallacies that they use um, Maybe, you know, pulling again from your book, again, we're speaking with Spencer Wright, uh, author of How to Think, Why Rational and Faith-Based Thinking Are Incompatible. Um, maybe talk for a moment about how apologists use fallacies in order to encourage people to make space for irrational thinking in order to be able to hold on to those beliefs that give them hope and comfort and peace and safety and happiness and joy and all those things. Yeah. So, so we've kind of touched on uh, a number of these throughout our conversation. Uh, but the, the point that I want to make on this is that it's actually impossible to maintain a religious belief, a faith-based, faith-based belief without committing logical fallacies. You actually cannot do it. And so to, to give it some examples, kind of just touching back to what we were talking about before, like the book of Abraham. So when, uh, when Mormon Egyptologists try to argue like what that facsimile one, now facsimile one is that picture, and of course they explain that as being the picture of the wicked priest uh, try, attempting to slay uh, Abraham on the, the lion couch. And so what they're trying to do is they're trying to go out there and pull all kinds of little little tidbits here and there to kind of show how you can create that space, as you will, to, to make the, the, the theory plausible that it's actually depicting a human sacrifice. So in order to do this, they have to do it. They have to commit a number of logical fallacies. The very first one that they have to commit is burden shifting. So burden shifting is I'm going to make a claim and then I'm going to flip it around on you to disprove my claim. So the way that logic works, the way that rationality works is that if I make a claim, I'm the one who is responsible for demonstrating that it is the most likely explanation for the data. It's, it's my responsibility. But in order to do, to do apologetics for the book of Abraham and that that facsimile specifically, I actually have to shift the burden onto somebody else. So, right. so I have to can say, I stop you for just a second? If, yeah, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. If, if I were to say, for instance, to the listeners, if I were to say, the flying spaghetti monster is the ruler of the universe, now Spencer, prove to me I'm wrong. Yes. That is, anyway, that is go, burden okay, go ahead and continue. Yeah, exactly. That is burden shifting right there. As soon as you make some wild claim for which there's not sufficient evidence to support the claim, and then you, you 
shift the burden over to the, the, the disbeliever in your claim to say, well, you can't prove it isn't true, then you have now shifted the burden. So you have committed a logical fallacy. And so what they're trying to do is say, like they'll, they'll use an example and say, so the original uh, facsimile one actually has a, what's called a lacuna in it. It's a, it's a missing portion that's actually chopping off uh, the, 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 the portion right above where, uh, where Abraham is supposed to be laying on the couch. And if I recall, I think it may actually be kind of cutting off his torso and everything too. But we can kind of see what appears to be one of his hands kind of close up by his head. And then there's what appears to be another set of hands. Well, some, some Egyptologists argue that that might actually be like the wing of of Isis extendio. Isis is a goddess who also is a bird at some point. And so some people argue, well, that actually may be a wing, not a second arm. But let's just assume for, for the sake of argument that it actually is a second hand. What they're trying to say is, well, here's an example where we've got this guy laying on this couch with two arms up, as opposed to every other example we have everywhere that only has one arm up. And so this exact same, the exact same scene is depicted over and over and over again in these funerary documents. Um, and so, but in every other example we have, there's only one hand up, not two hands up. Well, the, the problem with this theory is that, first of all, every example is unique in some way. Every one of these are hand-drawn. They didn't have a Xerox machine, right, to, to make copies of this picture. And so every one of them is hand-drawn. And so this may truly be the only example in the world where the dude's got two hands up. But that doesn't actually prove that this is a picture depicting human sacrifice occurring. So the, 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 real, the real problem is with this theory is that we're looking at a funerary document for ancient Egyptians. Ancient Egyptians believed in these gods just the same as uh, Mormons believe in Jesus and the Holy Ghost and everything like that. And so essentially what you're trying to argue here to say that there is a, uh, a depiction of human sacrifice in one of these funerary documents is the same thing as saying, well, I'm a... Uh, devout Mormon, and when I die, I just really want to be buried with a copy of the Book of Mormon, and I want—I really hope that someone writes on the on the cover, "Jesus sucks." Right? You see, you see the problem here. Why this doesn't really work to say this? Because why would anyone? Why would a devout Mormon ever write the words "Jesus sucks" on a copy of their Book of Mormon that they're they're burying themselves with? It doesn't—it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Ultimately, what they're doing is they're saying, here's a picture of Anubis, who is the, the, the god of kind of the, the they're called the psychopomp god. He's the god who helps uh, safely carry the deceased person to the happy afterlife. Why would I ever have a picture of Anubis, the, the, the god whose express job is to carefully take me to the afterlife, and I'm going to draw a picture of that guy with a knife up there ready to, to slay me a second time? It makes no sense whatsoever. But have to be open to the possibility that it's possible that for some weird reason this this uh, deceased Egyptian guy wanted to have a picture of himself being killed by Anubis. It makes no sense whatsoever. But what the Mormon Egyptologist is trying to do is say, well, prove me wrong. You can't prove that this isn't. Well, it's not even remotely the, the, the most likely explanation for that picture. Most likely explanation is the, the scribe who was drawing it may have just drawn two hands but he certainly was not trying to draw a picture of a guy being killed by Anubis. That makes no sense whatsoever. It's absolutely the least likely explanation you could possibly come up for that picture. But it's possible 
And so the, the Mormon or the Mormon apologist is now shifting the burden over to somebody else to disprove their batshit crazy theory about that picture. And and once like you say, once you say it's possible, you're already operating in the sphere of irrationality. Correct. Yes. Uh, any other fallacies you want to talk about? So, so just even along that same line, we kind of touched on this a little bit, uh, the fallacy that's called the Texas sharpshooter fallacy. And so basically what the Texas sharpshooter is saying is you're, you're essentially going out and finding, you know, the, 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 the premise of the, the fallacy, the, the name of the fallacy is that you were shooting with your gun and your gun didn't hit anywhere even close to the target, but then you go out there and basically and redraw the target around wherever you hit. So what they're trying to do is, in this situation, is go out there and find these sort of remote hits, things that sort of kind of connect and demonstrate that there is sort of a correlation between these things. Um, like, for instance, they will say that uh, the crocodile on the bottom of facsimile 1, uh, Joseph Smith claims that that is a representation of Pharaoh. And so their argument is that around the time that Abraham was supposed to have lived, there are many pharaohs who took the name of Sobek, which is the name of uh, uh, the name of uh, uh, the crocodile god in Egyptian mythology. And, and uh, pharaohs did take on names of gods as part of their name. Like, for instance, the name Amenhotep. Amun is the name of a god. So it's, so it's that kind of thing. Um, uh, Tadak Amun, that's, that's another name where Amun is actually the name of, uh, of a god. Uh, so there, there is, in fact, a number of pharaohs that would have lived supposedly at the same time of, of Abraham that, that took the name of Sobek as part of their name, their, their pharaonic name. The, the problem is, is that we're, just, we're stretching to find just these little teeny pieces of correspondence that are just... Barely, even you know, with a shred connected to what Joseph Smith was claiming and what the the facts are, all of the data, all of the facts around Egyptology that clearly demonstrate the most likely explanation for that picture is that it's a funerary document where uh, the Anubis or the priest representation of Anubis is raising the dead person from the dead. Every every piece of data, and in, in fact, even the crocodile, it's just that still supports the notion that, that that's what this is. That this is a funerary document, and the the dead person wants some sort of assurance that the gods are there waiting for him to raise him raise him up from the dead. That's the preponderance of evidence supports that. But when they're trying to go out there and pick these little teeny things out of the middle of nowhere, like in facsimile two, there's a picture of the four uh, sons of Horus. And so Joseph Smith says that those that represents the four quarters of the earth. And so yes, there is actually a remote connection between the the sons of Horus and the four quarters of the earth. And so they go, well, it's it's a you know uh, perfect perfect uh, connection right there. But it's like they're they're having to pick these teeny little examples that are just the flimsiest of connections between what Joseph Smith was claiming the document was and what the document 
actually is. And so Texas sharpshooter fallacy is go out there and find little teeny things that sort of kind of connect Joseph Smith and then say, there you go. We, pr- we just proved that he was a prophet of God because who could have guessed that four things together could represent the four quarters of the earth um, where they're essentially blowing off all of the other evidence around the document, like just an understanding of what the document is almost utterly rules out the notion that that is that effectively one is a representation of a human sacrifice. It's absurd. Right. right. There, so two things. One is the idea when we talk about the book of Abraham, as you point out, those who defend it as a uh, translated, uh, some, some level of historicity, uh, sacred text. Cause there's one thing between saying like, that's a myth but I still consider it a sacred text, which a lot of nuanced Mormons are, are doing at the moment. It's another thing to say, like, I need to defend Joseph. Um, this, he, what he claims, like in his mind, he really believes that. And, and that's really what's happening. When, what, what apologists do is, as you point out, disproportionately speak about the evidence. And here's what I mean. There's 150 things going on in the book of Abraham translation uh, 148 of them, the evidence de- is demonstrable that Joseph got it wrong. Now, again, we can make leeway for possibilities, but again, we acknowledge we're into irrational thought. So 148 of these, the evidence heavily leans toward Joseph having simply um, not done what he claimed he was doing. And yet the apologists really don't want to spend time on those 148 Instead, they want to say there's these two examples, the canopic jars um, and the crocodile god. And the the evidence says, like, the most likely explanation is that's one coincidence and two really not that strongly connected. But apologists want to spend their time there because there's this slight little tiny connection, as you point out. Meanwhile, nobody wants to talk about the 148 complete misses um, because that doesn't build faith. And as you point out, to, to do that is uh, egregious. It's an egregious act of inaccuracy and an egregious act of, of not giving somebody the fuller picture. Um, and as you point out also, it's operating in the sphere of irrationality. It, it's almost like I give you the one piece of evidence that helps you understand my conclusion while intentionally withholding 99 other pieces of evidence which point somebody to something completely different. Yeah. So now this kind of goes back to something that has been sort of happening in the last couple of days. I know that in the uh, Radio Free Mormon podcast, they were talking about this with, with Daniel Peterson. Is he, is he intentionally... Uh, trying to deceive people by withholding information or not. And, and uh, I know that there's been a big discussion going on with this, and I kind of got into this discussion a little bit with different people as well. And my, my whole thought on the, this, this tactic, I suppose, where obviously they're hitting, the, they're doing the Texas sharpshooter fallacy, right? They are hitting on the supposed hits that to me appear quite flimsy compared to the preponderance of evidence. Uh, the, it calls into question the the intent of the of the apologists to do this. My my whole philosophy on this particular issue is it's it's sort of irrelevant what their intent is. 
like like uh, essentially the the Radio Free Mormon was trying to say this is evidence that Daniel is lying that he's intentionally lying about the 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 situation he was talking about a, a different topic he was talking about the first vision but but the but my point in this entire thing is is that there's when we're when we're getting into intent we're now touching into what's going on inside of that person's brain and so what's going on inside of that person's brain is is still actually a question. We don't know what's actually going on inside of that person's brain. My feeling is when I was Mormon, when I was actually a believing, committed Mormon, I was committed to the theory of milk before meat. I was committed to the idea that I'm not supposed to go into an investigator and tell them all about, oh, we're going to become gods and here's all the weird uh, you know, things that we do in the temple and everything like that. And here's what they used to do in the temple. Um, because I'm, I'm trying to lead them in carefully, right? Just like as possibly under any type of thing where there's the salesman who is trying to sell you on the car. And of course, he's not going to start out with all the bad stuff. He's going to tell you all the good stuff first or whatever. And so to me, I kind of look at it and I go, intent is not really the focus that I think necessarily should be addressed when we're, when we're trying to, to discuss what an apologist is doing. Like, I can point out that that is absolutely the Texas sharpshooter fallacy when they are, when they are hit, hitting on these flimsy hits and, and glossing over the preponderance of evidence that clearly demonstrates that that's not at all what's going on. And I can do that and I can demonstrate all of this without having to go into the realm of that person's intent. And so when I look at that and I say, oh, this is a claim that, that so-and-so is lying or whatever the case is, I just look at that and go, I'm not even sure how helpful that is. I don't, I don't necessarily look at that as being, because obviously the person who's being accused of lying, if I'm being accused of lying, but I, and, and I have, I have had people just go, in, oh, well, you're just lying. You're, 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 you're not. In fact, somebody could very easily say what I just said today. Oh, well, you're just lying. You, you've, you've had, you felt the Holy Ghost and you know that this is all true and you're just lying. It's like, well, I know I'm not lying. It's like, like I can explain the, the, the feeling of the Holy Ghost relatively simply without appealing to some magical supernatural force uh, causing my brain to feel like that. And so, yeah, of course they could claim that I'm lying, but the reality is it's, it's, just, it's going into a realm that's almost unnecessary in order to demonstrate the wrongness of their claim. And so what I would just say is, okay, yeah, the, the claim was that they're not suppressing the different versions of the, the first vision or whatever the case is. Well, all I need to do is just say, well, here's an example of suppression. And then if the response comes back and goes, well, that's not how I define suppression, well, that's fine. But going into the realm of lying and questioning people's intent or whatever, to me, is, feels unhelpful in order to try to get to the root of the truth of what the claim actually is. Right. So you would say to, to the listener who is either within the realm of, say, progressive Mormonism or, or perhaps out as a post or ex-Mormon, um, rather than spend time, again, even if there's a little bit of evidence there to make the argument that someone is lying, it's, a, it's too tough of a thing to do because there's always these loopholes that you can't prove what's really going on inside someone's head. Um, even if you can convince your audience that they knew this information and, and they're lying about it, people can claim they forgot. People could claim that, uh, you know, they misunderstood the, the way the article was written, that you're much better off spending time 
um, simply showing the irrational thought in their defense and, and picking apart the weaknesses uh, in their argument, not rather whether they're being honest and truthful about that. And as you point out, Sorry, I had to cough. As you point out, um, give me a second here, Spencer. Um, I just lost my train of thought. Um, As you point out, we as Mormons, and, and every religion has this, like we have a reason and rationale, a logic even if it's illogical and irrational, we have a logic that says like, it's my responsibility to shield the person I'm talking to from understanding the full complexity because to do so isn't faith building. And so when we pick on somebody and say like, oh, you're lying, it gets messy because that person really does have justifications that they believe in uh, as reasons for which to couch words a certain way, withhold information, give people only the most faithful perspective. Um, For instance, in Fair Mormon, uh, I I rarely, and I know we're going long, I I rarely see apologists within, say, Fair Mormon um, step up and be vulnerable and say, like, you're right. Like, the more rational way, the more reasonable, the more evidence leads to this, like, ever. It's not like they just don't ever see that. It's like on every single issue, they realize the unspoken rule is that I cannot acknowledge that any one of these issues is our argument for it is weak. And they have their reasons for doing that, that our best time spent is simply to point out the irrationality of the conclusion they're drawing and the reasons for it and to stay focused in that side of the arena. Yes, and and I would say that's that's a human failing, not a Mormon apologist failing. No, nobody wants to be wrong, and so like it, it takes a, a very big person to admit what something that they believe in very strongly could be wrong. And so, so I don't I don't look at them and say, oh well, you just can't admit that you're wrong because you're deceitful or that you you know you know that you're wrong, and that's the reason why you're not admitting it, kind of thing. I I. possibility that he himself does not consider it like can he genuinely believe that he is not lying and I look at myself in exactly the same circumstance and just say hey I should give I should show him the same charity that I have for myself that I would want for myself to say look if I if it's possible that and you know this is funny that we're talking about this it's possible in after everything else we've just talked about if it's possible that he could genuinely believe that he is honestly telling the truth, that he believes he is not lying, it's probably pointless to go there as far as, as, far as an attack. Uh, the, all that needs to be attacked is the claim that there was no suppression and say, well, here's an example of suppression. And what, what the intent of what's going on inside of his brain, did he, did he forget? It's like, even when I was reading the, or listening to the Radio Free Mormon podcast, I was like, oh yeah, I do remember that story of uh, Joseph Fielding Smith, is that who it was, that, that ripped out the pages. Um, you remember that story, but I didn't remember the story until it was brought up in Radio Free Mormon. And so it's 
Sure. Yeah. Maybe in his mind, he's thinking something else, or maybe he defines, you know, the way he's thinking about expression is different. As long as he can genuinely believe that, that he is not lying, it's sort of pointless to go there. That's, that's my feeling. And so, like, I, I would just grant him the same charity that I would want for myself. Just believe me when I'm telling you that this is truly what I believe about rationality and faith, that that's actually really what I believe. And somebody can question that and say, oh, you don't really believe this about rationality and faith. We know that you're really secretly a closet Mormon. Well, it's silly. No, I'm not. And so all I can do is just, I can convey to you my genuine feelings, and you can either believe my genuine feelings or not. But you, all you can really do is either demonstrate what I've said is wrong or, or whatever, but calling into question my intent is not really moving anyone forward. Right. So one could argue whether somebody misled another person, but to stay away from whether that misleading was intentional or unintentional, as because, because at that point we're getting inside the other person's head and it's just an arena that we can't, we can't really have any kind of... Um, Insight. Absolute proof for, and so we—it's yeah. just better yeah. off to grant the charity. I get it. Um, yeah. I, I, this has been amazing. I know we've gone way longer than I think we both anticipated, but I think the listener is going to really love this this episode because it's just so focused on why these arguments hold up or they don't hold up, and and what's uh, not necessarily real or unreal, but how how we live our lives and other spheres. Uh, in our day-to-day operation and how we treat religion and, and other things that we're passionate about, sports, politics, differently. Um, I do want to, though, give you just a moment to to share where people can get your book. Again, Spencer Wright, How to Think, Why Rational and Faith-Based Thinking are Incompatible. Uh, Spencer, where can people pick the book up at? So the, the if, if people want to buy a hard copy of the book, they are more than welcome to. And I, of course, I'm not going to turn down money. I think that that's fantastic. Um, they can get it on Amazon. You can just do a search for my name and the name of the book and, and uh, it should pop up. Uh, and uh, you can buy a copy there. But I have also made the, uh, the Kindle version of the book for free. And so if you, if, you, you know, if you don't have money and you just want to read the book, that's fine. I'm, I would be much more uh, happy if people actually just read the book and understood what makes a thought rational versus what makes a thought irrational. Um, and so feel free to just read a free copy. If you, can, if you can throw down a couple of dollars for a copy, that's great. If not, don't worry about it. Um, you can get the, the book through, just go to Facebook, and then it's facebook.com slash book. And uh, it'll take you to my Patreon page, and then from there you can download the the uh, the Kindle file and and read it that way. Either one is fine. Yeah, and I will make sure that we include those links uh, on uh, the footnotes, the resources for this episode uh, on the on the website, our website, where where this episode is uh, released and published. Um, I just want to finish by saying that again, we're all welcome, as you point out. To, to have hope in things which are irrational. Uh, we all do it. We, whether it's our sports, our, you know, somebody says something negative about somebody in our political party and we stand up for them, even if the evidence is there that points to something else. Um, but what we should not do that you and I are both adamant about is we should never hurt or harm another human being over ideas that are batshit crazy. Absolutely agree. Yes, I think that's precisely my conclusion. Yeah. So with that, uh, listeners, we appreciate each of you joining in and and taking time to listen to Spencer. Thank you so much. This has been great. And uh, 
Um, I look forward, maybe sometime later here, we'll jump back on and talk again, because I think there's other directions to take this that I think you laid out really well. And I think the listener is going to walk away going like, yeah, I totally get it now. I understand how to separate rational thought from irrational thought. Um, so I think you've helped us all in our daily life. So thanks a lot. And uh, thanks for being on. Thanks for having me, Bill. Appreciate it. You are irrational. You never end. You never repeat. You are irrational. You're just like pi or the square root of three. Take it from me. Mr. YB, you are irrational. You are irrational. You never end, you never repeat. You are irrational, like the square root of two or the number E. Take it from me, Mr. YB, you are irrational.